0: Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I'm joined today by someone whose blog caught my attention and really shaped my thinking recently. Uh, that person is Derek Hagan, who is the founder of Money Health Solutions, a financial therapy and life planning firm. Money Health Solutions helps clients live intentionally and mindfully using money as a tool to support their ideal life. He facilitates financial health by helping clients understand their own money psychology, lowering their financial stress, and increasing their confidence in financial decisions. Derek, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Oh, it's great. Great to see you. So we have uh, at least a, a few things in common, but one thing that we have in common is that we think a lot about the meaning and and purpose of life and and the practical application thereof, right? How to define it, how to measure it, how to get more of it. You know, listeners of the show will know that I have this book that sits on my desktop. It's like my meaning book. And I add like two lines to it per week. I, I try and spend a little time working on it every week. It's gonna be my magnum opus. Look for that in about 30 years, so, but in a recent blog post, which sort of re-exposed me uh, to your work, you set forth a three-part formula for meaning that I thought was really useful. So the the three parts, I'll, I'll let you speak to it, but can you talk about those three parts and how they shape a, a meaningful life?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think equation might sound a little bit too precise and, uh, you know, mathy, but this comes from Michael Steger's work out of Colorado State. Uh, kind of the meaning in life expert of experts but the to have a meaningful life the the framework is to think about having three components of this meaningful life the first component is a purpose component so often myself included people talk about meaning and purpose as if they're synonyms or as if they're together uh, but this framework says we don't need to do that it's kind of redundant like saying the fall leaves in minnesota are beautiful just like they are in the united states it's, It's a redundancy that we don't need to to talk about. So purpose is one component. And purpose is a forward-looking aim. It's a direction. Do I know what I want to do? Is there something that I have to fill my time with? So this is is the motivational component of a a meaningful life is to have something to strive for. And so that's the purpose. The second component is coherence. Fancy word. Sense of coherence just means does life make sense? Can I make sense of life? So this is kind of the understanding component. Does do the events that have happened make sense? Is life chaotic? You know, that's the, the opposite of making sense is chaotic. So do I have mental models that help predict what happens? This is how I interpret the things that have happened to me. It's my narrative, the life story that I've created for myself and others. Do I have the ability to, to make sense? So to flip this around, it's hard to say I've got a meaningful life. If everything's chaotic and nothing makes sense, nothing happens like it's supposed to. So the sense of coherence brings that together. And then third is the sense of significance. And that is the sense that I have value. I feel like I'm, I matter to me or I matter to somebody else. So this is kind of an evaluative, an evaluation component of me making sense of, it's kind of like my judgment of that narrative. Do I feel like life is still worth living? Is there reason to to keep going so do i matter do i matter to myself do i matter to others again hard to feel like i've got a meaningful life if it doesn't feel like my life matters
1: yeah so does my life have an aim right does my life have some semblance of of order and does it have some sort of does it does it matter right like those are sort of the three constituent parts of of this this meaningful full framework What's the role of, of money in, in getting all these three to, to work together? Because it's not, you know, you talk about these things and it, it seems kind of out there, right? Whereas money is this sort of practical force in our lives. These things are sort of loftier, you know, way up Maslow's hierarchy sorts of considerations. What's, what's the role of, of money in creating a life with, with purpose, coherence, and significance?
2: In that article you referenced, this is my attempt to take Steger's work and, and bring the money into it. And if you kind of picture a pie chart split into three, purpose, coherence, and significance, those that's a pie chart that shows you the three components of a meaningful life. When we think about how do we design a meaningful life, it's about finding things that bring meaning to our life. So the word for this is sources of meaning. Do we have sources of meaning to fill up our meaning buckets and the best way to think about this uh, it's not perfect but it's kind of like personal values so if i value family a source of meaning would be spending time with my family so they're very very related now you can think on that pie chart there's a dot dot somewhere on that pie chart that represents a source of meaning so helping people recognize that to live a meaningful life you have to find a a diversified bucket of sources of meaning. So, for example, if I've got my sole source of meaning is wrapped in you know, we see this as financial advisors all the time. If my sole source of meaning is wrapped up in my work and something happens to my job, and it could be bad. You know, I could get fired. The company could go out of business or sold. I've lost my soul, my sole source of meaning. But it could be good stuff, too. And you see this all the time. It's that person who retires. I was Dr. Smith or whoever it is. But now I don't, I'm not Dr. Smith. I've lost my sense of identity and I've lost my sole source of meaning because it was tied up in my job that I retired from. So helping people figure out how to align their money with their sources of meaning, with their values, so that they can design a life going forward that they'd be happy to look back on. So that the role of money is to support life. It's not to make more money, you know, although making money and in interest and returns is a, is a strategy to help in the future, but the purpose, the actual real purpose of money is to help live life and live life in a meaningful way, design a meaningful life.
1: Yeah. You know, I think about each of these three with respect to money, you know, uh, the coherence thing I was, I was reading some articles this week for, for some writing I'm doing, and it looked at the level of sort of negative events that occurred in, in people's lives all across, you know, every part of the financial spectrum. And they found that you know people who made a lot of money didn't have fewer bad things happen to them than people who made a little money. But they found that their emotional reactions to them were much different because they basically bought their way out of trouble. I mean, they bought, the, they bought themselves coherence, so to speak. Like, yeah, if life got a little goofy, you know, something hard happened, the roof leaks or whatever, well, you just fix it, right? So you think about something like purpose or this aim in life, I mean everyone can can work for purpose that's free but it certainly helps to work for something you care about deeply if you're not having to work three jobs to support your family so I think there are all these ways in which money can sort of help us to to get this purpose coherence and significance
2: yeah absolutely and there's no doubt that my that money makes life Easier, and there's the 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 Kahneman study is at seventy five thousand still, or maybe it's been adjusted for inflation. But once you get to a a certain level of income, money does is less likely to make you happier, but it still can make your life easier. You know, it gives you breathing space. It gives you room to not have to worry about working three jobs, not have to worry about how I'm going to fix that that roof. It helps me carry on with the life that I want instead of being forced to. Fix a roof, or work several jobs that I don't like, uh, which is going to be trickier to live a live a meaningful life if you have to. If you feel like you've got shackled on,
1: yeah, it's so. I'm I'm reading a lot of interesting research right now on money and happiness. Everybody knows the Princeton, the Kahneman study, right? About seventy five thousand, and it sort of you know plateauing pretty significantly there. There's other research that's that's kind of taking that on that shows the subjective well being or basically just rises is like, you know, up into the right with income. So it rises at every income level, except for people who were hyper-focused on their incomes. So money makes you happier unless you're obsessed with money, if that makes sense. So people for whom money was sort of that chief pursuit, there's never enough money to make them happy. But people, you know, people, you know, so money as a, money as a pursuit isn't great, but if money ensues from, from living a life that you want to live and you so happen to, to be prosperous and to do well, those people were very happy and happier at every income level, at every higher income level than, than the one before it. So there's some, there's some interesting stuff. They also, also ran across some research that looked at, um, people who were focused on time versus money as they were graduating from from college about 60% of people were focused on time and and 40% were sort of more money focused and they they followed up with those people a year later and you know what do you know the people who were focused on time and relationships and experiences were much much happier than than the people who were focused on money so it's this weird thing, like we've we've got to have it. It does so much good in our lives, but if we sort of obsess about it or ruminate on it or let it become the central point of our lives, I think it can do a lot of a lot of harm in the pursuit of a meaningful life. Agreed, and I think that that makes sense. There's uh,
2: the book Happy Money talks about, you know, having money or making money is less likely to make you happy, but how you use money, can. Mm-hmm. and and I think there's some tie-ins there. And if you're using money you know, for giving or for experiences and to buy time and everything they talk about in that book. That's that's going to be good for you. If you're using it to support your meaningful life, then you're going to look back subjectively and evaluate your life better. But if you are chasing money to because you want to be the person with the most jelly beans, you know, so, so money is important, like you said. So when we think about these sources of meaning, uh, we could take it a step further. And there are deep... The way at least the way I interpret this, there are deeper sources of meaning, and there're shallower sources of meaning. And so money is important and it is a source of meaning. Materialistic type experiential sources of meaning are important, but they're quite shallow. and by shallow, I mean, if you go back to that pie chart and put the dot on there, there's a source of meaning that covers you know, maybe it's in the middle. it's covers all three. money covers all three of those aspects, purpose, significance, coherence. but if you go deep, it's not that. There's not that much to it, meaning even if you fill all that whole meaning bucket up with money, right, it's, it can't bring you that much meaning. Now, on the, on the flip side, say family is a source of meaning. That tends to be a deeper source of meaning. So if there's a bigger bucket for me to fill up my meaning, so to speak. So it's important, but it can only bring you so much meaning. Uh, if you can shift to more deeper sources of meaning, even if I'm not fully utilizing, my family source of meaning, I can still get more meaning than, than that money bucket.
1: Yeah. I love this, this conversation around deep versus shallow pursuits. You know, I read, um, Luke Burgess's book about mimetic desire this year. That was really good. And he talks about thick versus thin pursuits, kind of the same, same idea. You know, I also came across this research again, just again, just yesterday in some of my reading, and it talked about you know this this experimental condition where they assigned people to a couple of different groups, right? They assigned they gave people some money and they let them spend it in one of a couple of ways. They could buy themselves some sort of thing, right? Uh, they could buy themselves uh, some sort of time saving, right? So have someone cut your yard or clean your house or you know whatever. Get Uber Eats, oh, and they had people give it away, right? So I give you $50 and you're, you're tasked with, with finding a, a worthy recipient of that $50. Now, it, you know, it'll, it'll come as no surprise to the listeners of this show that, that far and away, the people who are the happiest were the people who either saved themselves some time uh, or gave it away to someone else. And yet when they did sort of a a follow-up to this and they asked them, you know, which, which one of these prizes, thanks for participating in the study, which one of these prizes would you like? Would you like a time-saving thing, a a charitable thing, or a tchotchke, right? Like a little, a little thing, which would you like? 98% of people went with the, the tchotchke went with, with, you know, the buying, buying a thing. So, it's, we're just, I don't know, help, help me understand. We're so miswired for this. We know that what makes us happy is like they, like they talk about in the excellent book, you mentioned happy money, the excellent book you mentioned, it's spending more time with people we love, having new experiences, right? Getting ourselves out of doing things that we hate doing. And yet so often when we have a windfall, big or small, we go out and buy a new shirt or a new car or, you know, whatever with it. How is it that we're so miswired to pursue this thin meaning when the thick meaning is right there? It's, it's, yeah, I, and I think we can get, take aside
2: the the mental accounting that happens with windfalls versus income and just think mm. of it's easy. It's measurable. Things like stuff, things like money, I can see that. so. You know, for example, not to get too esoteric, but everybody is at the center of their own universe, right? We're the center of our own consciousness. So I know exactly what it likes or what it feels like to be me. So if I'm feeling some kind of financial stress, I know what that feels like. Now I might hide it. I might avoid it. I might not be in tune to it, but I know exactly what it feels like. Any experience that you have has to be communicated to me somehow. And even if you, even if you perfectly communicate that to me, it's still one step removed because I can't experience what you experience so if i'm feeling any financial stress i know what it feels like i can't know what you feel like and then if you layer on top of that that money is a taboo topic that nobody talks about you're never going to talk about your financial stress to me because we just don't talk about this stuff if you add on top of that the fact that we tend to status signal with money you're going to represent that you're better off than you are meanwhile i still am over here knowing exactly what it feels like to be me so I have financial stress and I look out and I see, I notice everybody else seems to have their stuff together because I can't notice their financial stress. So I start to think I'm not happy and I want to be happy and these people look happy. So now, even though I know I read this book and I read this research and I know that I'm supposed to focus on relationships, that new car, my neighbor has a new car, my other neighbor has a new truck, and I feel like that must be what I I need to do. Not knowing that they're doing the same thing. They're looking at us thinking that we have it together because, you know, nobody reveals openly that we're, we have any kind of
1: stress, financial or otherwise. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's true. So it's, it's the whole social media thing, right? You're seeing a highlight reel of, of everyone else's life while you're privy to all of your, you know, to, to all of your woes and misfortune no, it's absolutely great. So the the thing that I loved about your meaning piece, Derek, is that it turned me on to to a lot of your other writing. And one of the ones that I loved really reminded me of some of my own philosophical interests. I'm interested in Stoic philosophy and existential philosophy, and, and both of them are uh, you know are, are very big on sort of a, a reflection on on finitude, right? On on reflection on our own the fact that we'll all die, right? That we all have a limited time here on earth. And so you're starting to see um, this make its way into financial planning conversations. I was listening to a financial planning podcast recently and they talked about sort of having this this conversation about how many visits do you have left with your parents? You know, I'm gonna go go see my parents next week uh, for Thanksgiving. They're in their late 60s. I see them, you know, Two maybe three times a year. So if I, you know, if if my parents live to a pretty normal age, I'll see them. I don't know, thirty more times. So like, you know, every every visit I have with my parents is three three or you know three or four percent of of all the visits I'll ever have with them, which is incredible to consider. And it really sort of changes the way you think about and prioritize these things. You wrote a post about this, this idea that, that finitude can inform planning and money conversations. How do you think we can do this in a practical way?
2: Man, so, so focusing on mortality, this is, this is what I think the world needs. And not that it doesn't need to be in a scary way. It doesn't need to be in a state planning way, although that's important. But when you realize that this is it, then all those shallow source of meaning drop away. This, you know, Kinder's questions two and three. Really good at this? You know, what do you regret? Or what do you want to do with five years left? That when you start, when you can really remember and remind yourself, memento mori type things that you're this is it, that changes your perspective, that changes what you prioritize. So once I can remind myself that it's not just me, so I'm going to die. I've got hopefully 40 years left, but my loved ones don't. You know, my mom doesn't have 40 years left. Uh, older friends don't have forty years left, and none of that is guaranteed. So once you can start to think about, this is it, and this this is what matters. Hanging, you know, being in relationships with people, hanging out with those that are closest to us, those closest loved ones. That's what really matters. Pretty soon, that all that fluff, those shallow sources of meaning, tend to to drop away. You know, you pe- things like near death experiences, or there's a show, I think it's Discovery Channel, that I used to like. I shouldn't be alive. Right. These are people that had crazy accidents and statistically they should have died but they didn't and what's the common theme through every single one of those people is they changed how they what they prioritized they changed their life because now they're on borrowed time or i love Bronnie ware is a she wrote a book called the top five regrets of the dying and she was an end-of-life nurse in australia i think australia and she basically she would work only with people who were on their deathbed they weren't trying to help them or cure them. Help's not the right word. They were trying to cure them. So this is comfort care. And she had a lot of conversations. What she learned was that most people regret something in their life. They think they've mislived somehow. And further, most of those regrets tended to fall into five categories. And and there's a lot of overlap, of course. But those categories, first and foremost, is I didn't live authentically. I didn't live a life that was true to myself. I lived a life that others expected of me. And that could be as little as I bought a car because my neighbor has a car and I don't need a new car to as big as I'm only a doctor because my family wanted me to be a doctor. I hate being a doctor. And so not living authentically, uh, working too much. You know, I'm really successful, but I don't have the time or the energy to enjoy that success. I didn't speak up. I didn't voice my opinions. I lost touch with my friends and I didn't realize that happiness was a choice or I, I felt pray to contingent happiness i'll be happy as soon as Mm -hmm. but what's what's brilliant about this book is that it helps us we don't have to be on our deathbed to realize what these regrets are so that can inform us now when there's still time left or we can still do something about it so living with finitude in mind helps us live more authentically it gives us more permission to live a life that's true to ourselves and use our money in a way that will help us design
1: a life that we'd be happy to look back on instead of you know, one of Ronnie Ware's regrets. Yeah, those, uh, those five top regrets of the dying, I've written about that. It's just so transformative. If you just read that book, heck, look up the five and take a, take a quick look at them. I mean, it will transform the way you think about your life. You know, this is such a tricky line to walk. And I'm gonna sort of hopefully get some some advice from you, get some free therapy, get some advice from you here. You know, we know this is important. You know, I know the the Stoics, the existentialists, they all believe in this. When we look at some of the happiest countries in the world, usually the Scandinavian countries and Bhutan are sort of neck and neck for the top, you know, top couple of slots. It's usually like Denmark, Bhutan, Bhutan, Denmark. And what's fascinating though is Bhutan is sort of an outlier because it's a very poor developing country. You look at somewhere like Norway or Sweden or Denmark and you're like, "Whoa, yeah, like, you know, yes, these are these are, um, you know, highly developed countries with an incredible infrastructure, incredible support system and welfare state effectively. Everybody's well taken care of. And in general, there is a pretty tight correlation between how wealthy a country is and how happy a country is. Again, money does buy some happiness. The wealthier a country is, in general, the happier they tend to be. Bhutan is this outlier. And one of the things that they do in Bhutan is they say they they, they talk about, in, in Bhutanese culture, they talk about end of life, on average, two to three times per day. This is just very top of mind for them. They're sort of living with these existential boundaries in, in mind. That's not something we do here, right? I mean, this is a country where we don't talk about death. And even when we do talk about death, it's in sort of a safe caricatured sort of way. I mean, you even think about, I always kind of laugh at like Halloween, right? So Halloween is this thing where we walk around our neighborhoods and they're filled with skeletons and ghosts and all these things but it's almost like a caricature of death that keeps death at arm's distance rather than an actual reflection on death. How can we introduce a concept like talking about end-of-life stuff, talking about the reality of our own, our, our own end in a country where that's sort of frowned upon and we kind of get looked at sideways if we bring it up? Right, I think you touched on an important point. So even,
2: even some very common questions people ask to say the kinder questions they can they can make people stressed out right because mm-hmm. no matter how careful how carefully you introduce them there and it's related to this idea that's it's a concept called death terror and mm-hmm. it, it basically yeah. Ernest becker wrote a book many years ago the denial of death and his whole point was everything that humans do because humans are the only so far as we know only species that can look forward into the future which is good for planning, but when you peek far enough into the future, you realize, oh, man, we're, we're going to die. And so everything that we do is a, a denial-of-death story. And that was built upon, and terror management theory has come out, which basically says everything that we do, we're trying to, we get, our behavior changes when we get introduced or reminded of our our death. So that can be capitalized on. So, you know, memento mori some people keep skulls on their on their desk or they keep pictures of uh i think this is like mexican culture does this a lot where they really remind themselves that they're going to die a lot probably in baton too and when you when you do that being reminded of your death will still trigger me but if i've gotten used to it if i've if i've if it's been normalized then it helps me focus on those close relationships so back to that those happiness studies I imagine, and I don't know this, I, don't, I hadn't seen the research, but the happiest country is, I really, to bad there's a high correlation with the amount of time they spend with other people. Hmm. And in, in Bhutan, being reminded of death is a reminder to hang out with those that are closest to me. And the Scandinavian countries tend to be more uh, social and, and less individualistic than, say, the United States. But if we're not careful, we can in, induce, you know, terror you know, the fear of death in the wrong way, which gets people to, to, to climb up and become really something I call emotionally flooded, but it, they get triggered in a way that could be unhelpful if we're not careful. So how do you do it? It's easing the, the idea into the conversation and things like, would it be okay? Yeah. So first of all, rem- letting people know that no is the full sense. If you don't want to talk about this, you've got right to full autonomy. So you're talking to a client and we have to talk about death. And you could even do this when you're talking about estate planning because you're introducing what happens to your stuff when you die, when you're doing estate planning. But it could be life design. How do we design this meaningful life for you? And if you want to talk about death, it's helpful to remind people you've got right to pull autonomy. And if there's ever anything that you're uncomfortable talking about, you could say no and you'll get no judgment from me. So that gives them permission to say, I'm doing this on my own accord. I'm doing this willingly. And then just easing these questions in, uh, recognizing that it could be uncomfortable for the client. So just, just putting on a, an empathetic hat and recognizing, just knowing full well, this is a touchy subject for people. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. It just means that we shouldn't just, uh, you know welcome Mr. and Mrs. Client. You're going to die. What do you want to do about it? I think that's
1: going to be think <laughs> he's, he's doing a little bit. You know your comment your comment brings me uh, in mind of some of the research on on fear as a motivator, right? So it's like can can fear be an effective motivator? The answer is kind of like it it just depends on on what you follow it with. There was this uh Cialdini talks about this fascinating research out of out of Thailand when when HIV AIDS was first sort of spreading and, and everyone was so scared of it and didn't, didn't quite know what to do, the initial response of the government was to try and do this sort of scared straight campaign where it's like, okay, uh, look out. You know, they would make these giant billboards, like watch out for the dreaded scourge and like stuff like this. And like, it does nothing, right? I mean, it's just like, okay, like all it does is, is bum you out and make you sad. And, and the same thing with bringing up death. But what they did is, they found that fear could be an effective motivator if it was followed up by sort of step, step-by-step solutions, right? Like, okay, uh, you don't have forever on this earth, right? You got 40 more years or 15 more years or whatever it is. You're only going to see your mom 25, 30 more times, Okay. So that in and of itself is just kind of a Debbie Downer realization But if you follow it up with, you know, as a financial planner, okay, Daniel, you're only going to see your mom 30 more times. Like, whoa, how does that strike you? Dang, like I hadn't thought of that. Okay, well, let's talk about this. Maybe we should set aside a little money so you can take a special trip with your mom, you know, and make, make some memories. Maybe you should structure your work life so that you can see her four times a year instead of once a year, or twice a year. I think if we introduce these concepts, not with an eye to just you know, scaring people straight or freaking them out, but as sort of a a pathway to a life better lived, I think we're not going to get the kind of kickback and the death terror. I reread the denial of death this year; just finished it, and it is a masterpiece. But you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna miss some of those negative reactions if if we can introduce the follow follow with a with a happy chaser and, and sort of a so what for living a meaningful life.
2: I love that idea of of introduce the concept and then bring it back to what does that mean for your life so you know the, the do the math kind of thing how many more times are you going to see your mom how many more thanksgiving's do you have left those kinds of questions are amazing and then i i like to go further and if i have poker chips here's your 40 you know here's your 40 chips and i want you to take one away every time you visit your mom that's a chip that you have to to pay and you see that stack start to dwindle you have some control over that equation though you don't have control over how long your parents live, but you have control over how often you see her, for example. yeah, And so that could be as big as I'm going to move across country to be closer to them, or I'm going to take more trips or I'm going to uh, take longer trips or whatever it is. But keeping, keeping these ideas in mind, it's whether we like it or not, these are the facts. We, we only have so many 30 Thanksgivings left with our loved ones. So one option is to avoid and hide from that. And the other one is to do the best that we can with the knowledge that we have.
1: Yeah. No, I love that. I think you've inspired me not to fight about politics at Thanksgiving this year. I think I'm mm-hmm. gonna make my remaining 30 visits as placid and as peaceful as I can possibly make them. So you, you mentioned a moment ago, you mentioned this, this phrase, emotional flooding. It wasn't one that I was, I was familiar with before reading one of your pieces on it. But as soon as I read it, I myself was flooded uh, with with memories of the past few years and how this, you know, this this concept of emotional flooding, I think very viscerally and very accurately describes the experience of the past few years for for me and I think perhaps for most people, you know, you got two bear markets, you got a, a global uh, global pandemic and accompanying shutdown, lots of isolation, work uncertainty, things like this. What, what is emotional flooding and, and what should advisors know about it when it comes to their clients and, and making good decisions?
2: Emotional flooding is, is what I call it. I learned this from Ted Klontz, but other people call it being triggered or seeing red or uh, being in a hot state. But it's basically when you're so stressed out that you, you're not really acting rationally. So if we go to, say, Kahneman's work system 1 system 2 or or the elephant and the rider I love using the elephant and the rider so the elephant is system 1 that's your fast thinking brain it's the subconscious brain makes 99 about well, 95% of your daily decisions and then you've got a rider sitting on top and that's your conscious mind and that's the one that we identify with as a me or a self is the conscious mind so this system works great when everything's fine that the rider has a little bit of control over the elephant uh, the elephant maybe ultimately is in control, but the rider gets to see what's going on. When something scares the elephant, though, the rider is not in control anymore. So I think this is a great analogy for what emotional flooding is. The rider is not in control. Sometimes, as a rider, I see what's scaring the elephant. Sometimes I have no idea. But I cannot do any... I, as a rider, cannot stop that elephant. I can't change that elephant's direction. The elephant is a mind of its own when it's scared. So looping that back in subconscious mind when it feels threatened when it feels like one of its basic needs aren't being met it's almost like the the conscious part of our brain the thinking part of our brain gets shut offline because the elephant subconscious brain works something like five seven times faster by its own than when it's hooked up to the the thinking brain so when we feel like we are being attacked when we feel like we're when that stress level is is too high the subconscious mind takes over, so it's the elephant takes over, and its job is to get out of this situation. So it's going to do fight, fright, fight, flight, or freeze. And you've learned throughout your life which one of those works better for you. You might have some friends that are quick to aggression. You might have some friends that just leave the room. You might have some friends that just detach and pout. Those are the modern versions of fight, flight, and freeze. But you've learned which one works the best. So Maui, the elephant part of your brain wants to just get out of the situation. And it knows nothing about the future. That's the realm of the conscious mind. It knows nothing about consequences. And so uh, if you've been in a heated argument with, if you've got a teenage child or a spouse or maybe a sibling when you were younger or your parents when you were younger, you probably had this experience where you say something that you immediately, maybe not immediately, 30 minutes later, once those chemicals leave, the flood goes away, you say, oh my God, what did I do? Because that's when the rider gets back online and says, well, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this instead. So emotionally flooded is being in a state where you're so stressed out that you're likely to say and do things that you're going to regret. So that's just in general. Now when it comes to what it can advisors do about it, it's the recognition that money is the number one source of stress for people in the United States. So clients are already more likely to be in an emotionally flooded state when they come to see you because money's filled with a lot of judgments and I'm going to see an expert and this expert's going to tell me everything that I'm doing wrong. This may be a prospect, maybe not so much uh, an established relationship, but that makes me a little bit on edge. So I'm I'm hypersensitive to perceived judgments when I'm talking about these kinds of things. So it's just the recognition that when a client gets emotionally flooded or when a client gets triggered, they're not acting with their conscious mind they're not reacting with their best their best mind so if we can we can set up the environment if we can set up our uh, engagement with them in such a way that we can help make it easier for them to remain in a in a regular state you know not a flooded state or recognize when they seem to be getting agitated or when they seem to be getting you know the emotional levels spike we can change the subject you can say, "All right, let's let's table this for a second. Uh, let's talk about insurance for a second, or whatever it happens to be." Um, so, being aware that that's a thing that we see red or we get triggered, and when we do that, we're not really ourselves. We we're acting like children. Basically, we're just trying to get out of this situation. But we know grown up strategies, and we grown up. We know grown up words, uh, and we're we're nasty when we're emotionally flooded because we just need to get out of this situation regardless of the consequences. So preventing that is just a matter of recognizing if your clients or prospects getting uh, emotional level gets a little bit too high then you can change the subject is my favorite technique because this is the subject that was getting them flooded. If we change
1: subjects really quick then it'll drop the emotional level. Yeah one of the Things that I borrow from the the twelve step programs is this concept of halt, right? To never make a decision when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And I mean, you know, there's plenty more emotions than that. Fill in your, fill in your most prevalent emotion. But you know, this is uh, something we need to train advisors to be aware of and to to steer clear of. You know, whether it's postponing a meeting, changing the subject whatever, no, nothing good comes, <clears throat> excuse me, nothing good comes of making a decision when, when you're that hot. You know, the last one of your works I'm going to touch on before I uh, point people to the blog so they can have as much fun reading it as I did, I want to talk about connecting with your future self. This is something you you've studied and you, you've written about. We know this is absolutely imperative because, you know, just as surely as, you know, 43-year-old Daniel sits here today, we know there's a 73-year-old Daniel uh, that's going to be around one day that's going to want, you know, a warm house and and good food and all the things that I want today, but that version of me is not very accessible. It's not very salient or vivid to me. How can we make this idea of a future self more practical, more real, more vivid to the people we serve?
2: Another one of my favorite topics. So in in the book Loaded, Sarah Newcomb talks about psychological distance and time is one of those that creates psychological distance. So anything that we can do to not see future me as a them and to see future me as a me uh, or, or even we is, is helpful. And age progression software has helped a lot with that. You take a picture of yourself and then fast forwards in time, shows you what you might look like when you're, when you're older. So that makes it more real. You're a real person. Future you is a real person, but even even more generally speaking the first thing i like to do to kind of tie time together is to help people connect with their past self because you've been that person so this is this is less abstract because what's the future mean i don't know it's a little bit esoteric and scary and wishy-washy but past me well i know exactly what past me was like so if i can connect with past me and pick a time period one year ago five years ago 20 years ago what what advice would you give to your past self and yeah i try not to allow people to do hindsight type they well, should have invested everything in tesla yeah buy bitcoin yeah <laughs> exactly buy bitcoin here and sell it there yeah. wrong answers I'm, I'm talking for like behaviorally and 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 the type of person you want to be what would you do differently or where? What are your sources of nostalgia? What brings you nostalgia in the past? When you look back, uh, where do you where do you feel that glowing feeling of nostalgia? Uh, and then, like, what's your proudest story? What's the story? Your go to story? What's the story that makes you the most proud? And that proud story one, almost always, I I haven't experienced anything other than this. Maybe there exists a story that doesn't look like this most people's proudest story is a story that involves overcoming some kind of challenge or struggle. Mm. That's why it's my proudest story. So the satisfaction that I got from that comes from overcoming some challenge. Right. So what that mm. does is it helps people tie challenge and satisfaction. It's a resiliency play. So I've overcome this and that's now my proudest story. That's easier to do looking back because I've, I've already come out the other side of that. But what I can do now is look forward and say, well, now I know what I'm willing to put up with going forward, especially if I've got a strong sense of purpose. Uh, Bringing it back to the meaning stuff. If I've got a strong sense of purpose, I can, and I know what I'm willing to put up with, it changes the sense of coherence. It changes the things that happen. It gives me a different story that I can tell myself going forward. So it helps me, it takes, say, meaningless uh, struggle and turns it into meaningful sacrifice. For this bigger purpose that I have. And related to that, back to the nostalgia thing, is to say, what do you need to be doing today so that in five years you can look back and, and view this with nostalgia? Because if you make no mistake, you will exist. So those are some ideas. And then I think this one is a journaling idea that I have people do, or it doesn't need to be a journal, you could talk out loud. But when you have when you give advice to your past self, That helps make the connection between you and previous versions of yourself. Then I ask people to spend some time and ask or talk to future you and pick three time periods. One year from now me, five year from now me, 10 year from now me. So November of 2023, Derek, what do I need to be doing today to make your life better? You know, 2027, Derek, what do I need to be doing today to make your life better? Uh, That's easier in my opinion. After having connected with the past, because now they've connected time periods, if I just drop those questions on somebody, they might be a little bit, it might be harder to do. But when you view it that way, you know, some of the little things that we get involved in that we think are so urgent kind of drop away because future you is unlikely to say, yeah, you should check Twitter 13 times before lunch. That's probably not something that's going to help future you out. Although I could imagine there might be exceptions to that, but uh, have conversations with your future self. Have your clients have conversations with your future selves and see what you want to put up with. Helps It helps create or craft a different story that the things that happen to you, you get to it be in service of.
1: I don't know if you're the originator of this idea of using the past as sort of a vehicle to connect to the future, but we're just going to say that you are because I've never heard this. I've never heard this anywhere else. And, you know, most of the work that I've seen around connecting to a future self has been around uh, talk or visualization or sort of the famous age progression software study that you talked about that showed that if you age people's spaces, they were sort of more motivated to save for retirement. It just makes me sad and makes me know how wrinkly I'm going to be whenever I've done those. But I mean, look, I'm wrinkly at 43. It could get very bad in the next 40 years, but but you know I really love I really love this idea of of you know talking about your past self, which is accessible to you, which is vivid, which is salient, and using that as a vehicle to kind of propel you into into the future. Really rooting it in something uh, deep and and something accessible like that. That's that's excellent. I know I'll be using that. So, uh, Derek. If people have been as wowed by your ideas as as I have and, and they want to dig into the blog the way that I did, tell us what you do. Tell us about, you know, here's look, this is your Super Bowl. Here's your Super Bowl ad. Tell us, tell us the services you offer where people can read your work and and where people can find you.
2: Yeah. So I, I write a weekly article column uh, at moneyhealth.blog, and you'll be able to sign up there if you want to get notified of the weekly. Letter or the weekly newsletter, the weekly post, but you can find everything that I've I've written there as well. Social media links are on the side. But basically, what I'm doing is I'm helping people. A lot of what we're talking about today is what I do, and it's helping people understand the role that money has in their life. And it's not as a goal; it's just as a tool. Uh, But what that tool does is going to be different for every person. And so I'm helping people connect with their personal values. I'm helping people. Connect with their sources of meaning, helping diversify those sources of meaning so that they're not they don't have a lopsided wheel, so to speak. Uh, Basically, help them live more intentionally, make their financial decisions and other decisions on purpose. You know, so grow the space between impulse and purchase, between stimulus and response, and make sure that you know what you're trading off. Make sure that you're making decisions knowing the full consequences of those decisions. So basically, living intentionally, using this money as a tool to get there. And hopefully this will help them get a, a meaningful life as they look back and, and reflect on their life.
1: Yeah. No, no more important work than that. What's the website one more time? Moneyhealth.blog. Awesome. Derek, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for sharing all these great ideas with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.